we're going to 1.30, this is a two-hour panel, and uh, obviously a subject of interest to a lot of you, and uh, then there's a water ceremony down at the Otter Cove immediately following this uh, panel. Welcome everyone, my name is Rick Ingrassi, I'm director of this Story Dome project, the dome that's uh, next door here, and I'm a psychiatrist by uh, training and background, and psychedelic researcher and therapist uh, by, uh, I don't know what you'd call that. <laughs> I, I'm a 60s baby, you know, 60s generation, and uh, I went to medical school uh, in 1969 specifically to become a psychedelic uh, psychotherapist because I had been so impacted in my own personal life and experience by uh, psychedelic medicine, uh, and that was also the year that Richard Nixon uh, began the, the war on drugs and shut the whole thing down and created the you know cultural hysteria we've been living with ever since. But today, uh, my uh, panel of friends here and colleagues are, are going to uh, share some of the good news around the uh, transformations that are happening in the field of psychedelic medicine. Uh, because there is a lot of good news, and uh, as you'll see, everything from the legalization of marijuana in state after state, and serious scientific research uh, beginning once again with uh, lots of these uh, psychedelic substances. Uh, again, a lot of this happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then it got lost, uh, or let's call it uh, suppressed. <coughs> and uh, but uh, here, here we have the opportunity to. To uh, hear from some of the experts and some people who are out there uh, doing the work and uh, gathering the, the uh, data and information and I hope you find this to be an enlightening experience I'm sure you will we're also going to uh, once they uh, do their initial introductions and presentations we'll uh, open it up so because some of you may have questions uh, any question is okay at, at the level of you know a specific substance or specific concern, uh, comment, etc. This is uh, really a community conversation. Nobody has all the answers, but uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to see all of you here. There's clearly an interest in understanding where this, where this could, all could go, and I personally believe that in terms of the transformation of consciousness that's needed, I've always believed this since my days in the 60s, that uh, psychedelic medicine has a role to play in this uh, social and cultural transformation. So that's uh, who I am, and, and I'm going to moderate this discussion. Uh, these guys are very professional, so I won't have to interrupt you too often. <laughs> and uh, we'll start, uh, as, uh, Richard or Donna, which, are you gonna start, Donna? Oh, you are. This is Dr. Richard Jensen, how, psychologist. How about if we introduce ourselves across first? Oh, okay, can do that first. Um, my name is Magenta. Um, I'm an imagination healer, is like the root of what I do. Um, but I'm the executive director of the Evolver Network, which is a little bit like the community service arm of the psychedelic movement, or, or one of them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we have like 33 chapters around the world that uh, gather community to um, talk about integrating the, the psychedelic experiences we have or other mystical experiences and how do we um, take responsibility as a society and skill share, share skills to uh, make it through this uh, massive upheaval time that we're going through. I am Richard Jensen. 
I'm a clinical psychologist uh, who has a penchant for timing that resembles Rick's. You know, I got interested in psychedelics around 1967, which was a little late to be interested in psychedelics, and yet I had a, a guardian angel and somehow became involved with the early work at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center where I trained and I'm proud to say I did the first research with a phenethylamine, the family that MDMA is part of, showing that it was a benefit in psychotherapy. That was my doctoral dissertation. Um, I've been a psychedelic therapist at heart my whole life. I've gone to Mexico. I'm, a, I'm half Panamanian, so I speak Spanish, was able to work in Mexico for a while worked with shamans in the mountains, worked with a Mexican psychoanalyst, um, but definitely felt the impact of the drug war, which closed down the work that I was doing, uh, and then struggled consistently to get it going again. Um, my wife Donna Dreyer and I uh, imported 85 milligrams of LSD legally from Switzerland for research with uh, dying patients and addicts and uh, had FDA approval and were just about to go ahead and they withdrew the permission and closed us down. That was in 1998. We moved to Canada and I, I really basically thought I was retiring. And uh, now I'm happy to say that we're involved with MAPS and uh, in February we gave the first legal psychedelic session in Canada that's happened in 40 years. We gave MDMA to uh, uh, someone suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, intractable post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's the research we've been involved with up until now. Yeah. My name's Donna Dreyer. I'm a psychiatrist, and the first time I ever was able to take MDMA was with a bunch of psychiatry residents. In 1984, before it actually became illegal, and we as a group were trying to gather some evidence to present before a panel, an administrative law judge, to try to make it not become completely uh, unavailable to people. So um, that didn't work, but we're trying again. So this is, um, I don't know if everybody here knows what MAPS, M-A-P-S stands for. It's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's an international um, organization, nonprofit um, organization that's been trying to, for the last 30 years, get MDMA and other psychedelic research going again. Um, right now there is a, um, they're just finishing um, the, safety phase study for MDMA that's been happening at five different sites, Israel, Switzerland, South Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, and we just finished our one in Vancouver. So um, now we're collecting all that data. We were using the same protocol and the same measurements and uh, now applying for what's considered a phase three or efficacy study to show, you know, that, so the, the end result is to try to make it into a prescription medicine that would probably be available in treatment centers. Um, so this is not to negate all the everything else that's going on, right? Everybody else, that everybody here, every, all the festivals. So this is just another way of getting it into the culture, right? We gotta get it in every way we can. So 
Now, are you going to present an overview? Is that yeah. So, Richard will begin. Yeah. I'm going to back us up a bit. In 1965, there were hearings that went on in the United States Senate. There was alarm about a new drug, LSD, that had happened upon the scene, and particularly alarm about Harvard researchers that were giving LSD to undergraduate students in defiance of the administration of Harvard University. Very a lot of alarm about Timothy Leary and his whole idea of really basically overthrowing the society that wasn't working and using LSD to do it. Um, Thomas Dodd was the chair of those hearings, and he had a senator from Connecticut. He had impeccable credentials as a Nazi fighter. He had been uh, on the panel at uh, the Nuremberg trials as a senator, a representative of the U.S. government that hung many of the supposedly worst Nazis in Germany. <clears throat> but he had descended into alcoholism at that time. And uh, we know this because very soon after those hearings, he was censured by the U.S. Senate for his alcoholism and his unethical behavior. He was taking money from different sources and funneling it into his own personal accounts. Um, this gentleman decided that LSD should be prohibited, and he decided that, along with Abraham Ribicoff and the rest of the Senate, uh, at their behest, um, because they felt just prohibiting it was the answer. This stood in the face of testimony from scientists. This stood in the face of over a thousand papers involving 40,000 patients saying there was benefit to this. Robert Kennedy's own, who was a senator, his, his own wife had been successfully treated for her alcoholism with LSD in Canada at Hollywood Hospital. And he was saying things like, properly used LSD could serve the American public. It was a wonder drug last week. It's a demon drug this week. I think that we need to regulate this very carefully. Many, many of the scientists were saying, we need to have careful regulation so that we can keep this in the places where they thought it belonged, in the, in the research laboratories, in the, in the, the therapy offices. Um, Basically, the United States Senate did a completely and utterly bankrupt thing. It ignored the advice of experts. It ignored the truth that the scientists were presenting about how this ought to be dealt with and decided in the face of scientific evidence with their power as politicians to declare that there was no recognized medical use or possible medical value for this drug, and therefore it would be prohibited. And it joined uh, marijuana, which was the first drug to be kind of wrongfully placed in this Schedule One category, um, and became part of a drug war that has been one of the darkest episodes in human history and particularly in United States history. We currently have more people in prison per capita than any other country in the world. Welcome to the land of the free. Some here, people here might remember that back in 1986, one of the most successful ad campaigns ever created 
was the eggs in the pan, this is your brain on drugs. I mean, it was amazingly successful. The, the organization that put it out, <laughs> made, they made millions of dollars on this ad campaign. So, um, but now we actually, in this the last decade, we've seen actual um, an increase in the kind of brain scans and the resolution, uh, real-time resolution of brain scanning that they've been doing um, with people on psilocybin and MDMA. And what they have been able to find out is that under, probably most psychedelics we're talking about, but definitely pictures of psilocybin, it deactivates our roof brain, our cortex, where it turns out we are inhibiting a huge amount of inflow of information. So um, it, it, it's interesting that under the influence of a psychedelic, the particular activity of certain parts of our brain are deactivated. And that's how the experience blossoms. One of the ways that the part of our brain that actually figures out that we're in here and everybody else is out there is turned off. So the illusion of being separate no longer exists. <laughs> so it's, you know, you become one with everything and you can't really figure out where you end and everything else starts. Um, now that can be kind of scary for some people. And it turns out that it actually is really scary for a number of people if you're not in the right place or the right time or the right people around you. So um, that's one of the reasons why we talk about having a sacred vessel. That if you're gonna do a, a major psychedelic and ingest it or create what we have as DMT in our own brains if you wanna stimulate that, um, you need to be in the right place for it anyway. The other thing that is really interesting for me right now and is very exciting is I think of it as kind of like a perfect storm where there's a confluence of a lot of paradigm shifts happening all at once right now. Um, the whole understanding of neuroplasticity where um, all of the experiences that we have change our brains. If you look for a certain kind of experience and you practice it every day, it changes your brain. And um, this new brain imaging technology is showing people who have been meditating for 40,000 hours, you can see, or, or a lot less than that, they actually have done brain scans of people who've been meditating for eight weeks and have shown amazing changes. They've also shown how early childhood adversity, people who have had difficult, really, really difficult experiences as children, it actually changes their brain so that you, they've been able to show this so that um, it's actually something that, uh, if you think about it, maltreatment of kids has happened throughout history, right? But now we see it in their brains and how it actually affects health. So that actually could make policy changes. Uh, the understanding of interpersonal neurobiology, that when we are together, it's we're actually changing each other's brains by being together, not energy shifts, but really literally changing each other's brains. And the other thing that's interesting to me is the whole understanding of identifying with the earth, that um, if, if the illusion that we are not separate 
is experienced by more people then we can actually identify with the earth and we wouldn't imagine doing things to the earth any more than we would cut off our own legs. I'm going to go back a little bit to the beginning of my training at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. We were trying to study psychedelic drugs scientifically and we were the last place in the United States to do that with major federal funds in the 1970s up until 1976. Um, we were trying to look at how psychedelics could help people die well, so we were working with terminal cancer patients. We were working with alcoholics, um, trying to look at the loss of meaning that alcohol abuse represented to them and could the meaning be restored by a mystical experience with a psychedelic. Um, we were working with people who had different kinds of neurotic complaints. Um, we were working with professionals who wanted to understand their patients or wanted to work with psychedelics themselves. So we had a, a kind of a mini training program where professionals could have three LSD experiences. Um, and then suddenly we were shut down. It came out that uh, the CIA had been using LSD in the 1950s and had given it to one of their members and he had jumped out of a, a uh, building in New York City. Later came to light that he was actually thrown out of the window by his fellow CIA employees. Um, but that abuse created a furor in the press and um, the re this last research center in the country was shut down to psychedelics. For me, it was like the, the horizon of my life, what I wanted to devote my life to just, just closed. Um, and I've spent the rest of my time trying to open it again, and uh, with not very much success when this little ego was working on it, you know, I got up to a certain point and they said, stop, forget it, and then when I threw in the towel and said, okay, no more, <laughs> then suddenly get a telephone call, how would you like to take over this project in Vancouver? Uh, so that's, that's been really wonderful. And it's part of a psychedelic renaissance that's been brought about by people from the team that I worked with in Maryland. Uh, Bill Richards was another psychologist there and he went to Johns Hopkins and uh, began reproducing an interesting early study um, Walter Pankey at Harvard University in 1962 had given uh, psilocybin, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, to young ministers in training at a Good Friday uh, service. And he had developed a questionnaire to examine the kinds of mystical experiences they had. And as his doctoral dissertation had shown that the mystical experiences under the effects of psilocybin were genuine and deep and fundamentally indistinguishable from the mystical experiences of sages and saints throughout the ages. Um, so that work was seminal at that time and of course it influenced everything we did at the research center and then when Johns Hopkins started working again in concert with the Council of Spiritual Practices um, they instituted a program for experienced meditators to try psilocybin and they found that people had these 
types of mystical experiences. <laughs> and uh, then in fact, they were changed. And in one year follow-up, they were still saying, this is perhaps the most important experience of my life. Um, so this was remarkable. I'd given a talk at Hopkins maybe 10 years before this, where I went over the psychedelic work, and I even showed some pictures of a, a patient in, um, in Britain that had horrible psoriasis on her body. And so there were pictures of her uh, covered with sores, and then after five LSD sessions, she's completely clear. And when the talk was over, I got a thank you note from George Bigelow, the head of the department, and he said, uh, Richard, I want to thank you for a fascinating presentation. I hope you realize that most of us didn't believe you. <laughs> and the reason they didn't believe me was that they couldn't believe that any healing would happen that wasn't mediated by the long-term administration of some substance. In other words, medicine had gone out of the realm of being able to believe in a healing experience in an experience that's so powerful, so overwhelming, so informing of the true nature of what it is to be a human being, that you would be different forever after. And that's really the fundamental core of the psychedelic approach to therapy, is that that kind of experience is at the core of healing ourselves. Whether it's um, from childhood trauma, whether it's from observing the horrible trauma in the <coughs> world, whatever it is that needs healing, the healing is in that core experience. People talk about guiding psychedelic experiences, but it's really about allowing somebody to have a psychedelic experience, about facilitating that. Shall we let Magenta introduce her work? Yeah, sure. The perspective I want to bring to the conversation is about the entheogenic plants and the community container side of tripping together um, and integrating our insights. I see a lot of the public discourse being about uh, the chemical medicines and legalization through the FDA and a you know controlled clinical setting, which is awesome. Like we need that pathway to be happening. And I think there needs to be more international discourse about the uh, other pathways of legalization, such as religion, such as, you know, cultures that have worked with these plants for 5,000 or more years, um, which are not just the entheogenic plants, but a huge spectrum of medicinal plants. Uh, this is a vast living biochemical library that we have to heal our bodies, to heal our minds, uh, to heal our relationship with the natural world. And I uh, think uh, the entheogenic plants and other medicinal plants are doorways to uh, reconnecting with nature and repairing our relationships as a society. Um, I think when we when we talk about the the plant-based psychedelics, uh, you have free access to medicine. You can grow things in your backyard. You can get them from a neighbor or someone that you know. Um, I think it's most common today for a kid to get introduced to psychedelics at a festival where a stranger hands them an alphabetamine, LSD, 2CB, etc. It may or may not be that. It's really common for things to be bath salts, for example, um, and which is like super bad news. Uh, and you know, you don't know the energy of where that came from. And 
the containers that we're creating at, at the large festivals. I don't know how many of you have been to like the really big ones over like 10,000 people and stuff, but it's super chaotic and really the shallow end of the pool that we're bringing people into this really powerful cosmic opening. Um, and I think that as a culture, we need to be looking at the deeper kinds of containers that are available and advocating for those. Um, and I really would love to see the older generations of folks that went really deep with each other in the 60s and 70s um, to be connecting with a, the youth culture, um, just the, the wealth of wisdom that you've gathered from the psychology research and the kinds of containers that you all developed together. Um, is something that I think is really needed, and uh, the more we can talk about that, the better, I think. Um, one of the things that comes with uh, growing plant medicines, um, I think, comes a, a stewardship and a living relationship with the whole plant. Um, may, some of you may or may not know that plants such as peyote, uh, acacia in Australia, ayahuasca, and many other medicinal teacher plants in the Amazon are being over-harvested. And of course, like vast swaths of jungle are being raised for monocrops and stuff. Um, but when we when we actually cultivate our medicine, we develop a, a relationship with the plants, with uh, the soil ecology and the whole microcosm, macrocosm of that whole underworld, like literally, and you have an embodied relationship with it. And I think with the plants comes a lot of wisdom of the physical body that is part of our disconnected uh, relationships with earth right now and some of that comes from industry um, the massive use of pesticides and fungicides are like messing with our intestinal bioflora and um, often those the symptoms of that including toxins in the air that we breathe and the water that we drink um, causes psychological symptoms depression ADD um, schizophrenia bipolar disorder autism uh, there's actually evidence of a genetic marker for autism that affects 11% of white folks, uh, less of other populations, which is not a problem until your environment is toxic because it affects your cellular ability to filter that. And so this is this kind of like deep uh, wisdom of the body, I think I find coming through mushroom and ayahuasca cultures with people who are not so much at a dance party with it, but really with the plant and that that place to go inward. Um, I'm always shocked that I never see at festivals like an ambient zone where it's safe to lay down and go inside where there's you know people tending to the space so you're not getting stepped on. The music is conducive to that. I guess not so much bass in your face rage which is awesome. Like we obviously as a culture need to get some stuff out of our system. We're living in such an oppressive environment um, and I really think the in terms of festivals, that culture is scaled enough. We have millions of people worldwide, thousands of festivals, these huge gatherings, and we're really at a point where we can integrate and connect back in with the default world, with the cities where we live. And I think that uh, legalizing entheogenic medicines, both the chemical and the plant ones, is the number one thing that we could do to address the political, economic, ecological and health situations that we're facing on a really massive scale. And I think that bringing some of these other threads of the conversation into the public discourse can help that legalization. I'd love to see a mushroom church, for example. There's a, with ayahuasca, you have the UDV and um, Daime, which are legal in certain situations. There's a lot of countries where it's legal and you can go. Um, 
Yeah, just briefly, I want to talk about what the Evolver Network is doing toward that end. Um, so we have local groups around the world. There are 33 local chapters right now, which are called spores, because it's all built on a mushroom metaphor. We're like a mycelium of sharing information and resources. And uh, so we, we kind of approach intersectional activism. Um, so like alternative economics, permaculture, uh, holistic healing, the arts, and social justice, especially when it comes to like indigenous folks with these medicines, like their lands are facing destruction by mining companies and this kind of thing. Um, and uh, so every year we do a campaign called Planet Medicine, which is a global media and action campaign advocating for awareness of our relationship with the plant kingdom as medicine for a planet. And a, a lot of it's focused around entheogens, but connecting up how they're a spectrum of our relationship with the plant kingdom for medicine, for food, for shelter. And that can just, it's so at the core, like it can just really open a lot of connection up for people. Um, and then we're also developing, uh, it's been called the Evolver Lounge. We're actually separating from the Evolver Company right now and coming up with our own name, the local groups. Um, but uh, we've been developing an educational container that can go to festivals. We're looking at going specifically to festivals over 10,000 people that have no conscious programming and that kind of stuff um, to bring in information like, here's how you set up an altar or bring in guides to prepare your space and go deeper. Here's some nutritional information to mitigate the biochemical hangover afterward. Here's some herbs or supplements that can help you with that. Basics like drinking enough water. Um, if your friend's starting to have a trip, bad trip, like check the water and food situation first at a festival. Like they might just be like literally feeling a little bit bad. Um, and uh, yeah, per also provide a portal for civic engagement because uh, you know we're tripping out with each other, which is great. But like, let's bring it back now. Um, and a couple other organizations to mention that are doing really cool work too. The 920 Coalition is a coalition of organizations that are working on talking about legalizing psilocybin and uh, advocating for education about that. And there's also ERIE, the Entheogenic Research Integration Education Group out of CIIS in San Francisco. And they host integration circles for people to share their experiences. Um, if they've had a trauma surface and become unblocked in a psychedelic journey, they give them resources for practitioners that they can work with uh, to make sense of that and begin to work with that. And because again, we have the psychedelics are a super powerful tool, open up all kinds of stuff. And often the, the little things that come up in our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our psyches to heal, there's sometimes you need a, well, a different modality to help you integrate and move through that because the, the potential of these things is this massive individual and collective healing. And this is really a time to pull out every tool we have in our toolkit to uh, rebalance our ecosystems and our relationship with Mother Earth. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like an introduction to yeah, yeah, what okay. I want to bring to the conversation. <laughs> thank you, thank you, all three of you. Uh, any any other introductory comments before we start a larger conversation? No, great. Well, maybe I'll say something clever. Let's see. That's <laughs> great. I, uh, you know, I've, I've been a physician since the early '70s, and uh, most of the work that I did, uh, I did quietly, and uh, you know, there, believe it or not, uh, even with the uh, war on drugs, uh, psychedelic therapy did not go away; it just went underground. <laughs> and of course, the rave movement grew, and you know, the uh, 
younger generations, uh, j just as you would expect. I mean, we, we predicted, especially with uh, ecstasy, that uh, scheduling it was not going to stop the festivals you know, and the raves. Uh, and of course it didn't, it grew into a worldwide movement. But without going into detail, I just want you to know that there are hundreds of psychologists, counselors, therapists, psychiatrists around the world who have a huge body of knowledge that we share quietly and you know there, there are networks of uh, these conversations uh, and it, it, it kind of it, it's like the fungi like the mycelium underground you know it's all connected and uh, the maturity and the wisdom is building and just like with cannabis what you have seen in the past few years I mean I'll be honest with you I didn't think in my lifetime I would see the legalization of cannabis as a healing tool and uh, now, now it's also in where I live in Washington State and Colorado and soon to be every state in the Union uh, legal uh, for recreational use as well. This is a tipping point, you know, a, a, a complete flip from one side 180 degrees to the other side. And it moves from fear and hysteria and suppression and repression of the truth to essentially science and real cultural maturity around how you handle powerful transformational experiences. I mean, this is a very exciting thing. And, and uh, you'll, you'll notice that where I'm gonna keep coming back to is, hey, it's been really shitty in the past 40 years in terms of what's gone down, but it's changing. And we can participate in helping that change happen more rapidly. As uh, Magenta is pointing out, this has implications for social revolution and social change. Uh, it's a bit chaotic to try to predict what happens when large numbers of people are, are doing these things in, in uh, both clinical and controlled and uh, more open-ended, open uh, creative, artistic uh, environments. But it's all good because the indigenous cultures have shown us for thousands of years that these plants and these substances are a part of human nature. I mean, do you, do you realize that you have millions of cannabinoid receptors in your body? Cannabis interacts and locks into our minds and our bodies directly because we've co-evolved, uh, as Michael Pollan has pointed out in The Botany of Desire, you know, with all kinds of plants and we need to understand this and we need to be wisdom keepers of how to use these things for social good and social transformation so with that more big context uh, comment uh, I, I want to just invite you to uh, either make a comment or ask a question or uh, uh, yes I've got a question about policy and getting it legalized basically and particularly psychedelics like psilocybin and looking at kind of the marijuana blueprint, and especially in Oregon and Washington, where these are ballot initiative states, Oregon and Washington, it got on the ballot and was voted into legalization. Is there a path in that regard for psychedelics as opposed to fighting the Schedule I uh, federally? So the question is, is there a path to actually legalize psychedelics the way that there's been a path for legalizing cannabis? Right. In a and sense, particularly psychedelic therapy, 
and maybe ultimately especially psychedelic therapy uh -huh. in a in a sense what's what's really interesting about that is the reason the reasoned thoughtfulness that should have been there in the senate can still be there in the people that's what I'm thinking. And democracy can shine in this regard. Especially here. At the same time, the campaigns are going to be really ferocious. <laughs> so um, we're hoping that with MDMA, that will that'll happen with MDMA. And then with also with psilocybin, there's another group, Hefter, which are doing a lot of studies so that's the sort of scientific way in to the psilocybin. Then there are the religious, there are, there's, there are groups that are trying to work on getting both ayahuasca churches and a psilocybin church. There are people who are gathering trying to do that. In terms of psychedelic psychotherapy training, we're actually trying to put together this year a psychedelic psychotherapy training that um, can happen, probably it's gonna be in Canada uh, in Vancouver and Cortez Island where we live, but we're, we're trying to, to gather the people who are starting to work in all of these different projects. And also, um, it turns out it's probably ethical and legal for any therapist, if a client or patient shows up on their doorstep on something, that they must lead them through a safe, well-guided ceremony. So. Uh, it turns out that that people need to be trained this way. So that's what we're trying to push for now. I don't know if this applies, but there are people working on something called Home Rule. I know Mendocino County in California did it, and people in Boulder, Colorado are trying to do it too, where you can, um, there's some protection around setting your own local laws that can override the federal government. Um, I haven't researched it too much, but it's called home rule, if you want to look into it. That's in the United States. I don't know about Canada. Great. Thanks for the question. Another uh, over here. Is MAPS actually doing uh, training of facilitation? Is that what I heard? Well, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is going to be conducting um, a training that is for people who will be conducting the actual research in phase three. What we're talking about is something that is different from that, but also connected to it. Also, the California Institute for Integral Studies is also trying to put together a program. Um, so we're, we're working with all of these people, trying to, we're all connected and trying to make it all happen in all as many ways as we can, so. Basically, uh, the phase three studies are efficacy studies, so that would be, MD is MDMA efficacious? Which is a funny question to ask, but, <laughs> since we all know the answer. But um, we will ask it in formal ways, and it's necessary for the FDA to approve a compound. It's the last hurdle before they reach the stage where prescription status would be the normal thing. I don't think psychedelics are going to fall into a normal prescription status, but probably some kind of amended prescription status, like if you're within an organization that's licensed and approved, and you're trained and licensed and approved, then you can do this. This is just one way into the culture, and I think that there are many, and we really need to approach it in as many ways as possible. The other thing to keep in mind 
is that many of these ideas are old. Tim Leary formed something called If If and tried the psychedelic church approach and was batted down. Uh, the thing that's been amazing about the Brazilian churches is because they had a long history, particularly the Santo Daime, they started in the 30s. There was less of this tendency to say, well, that's not real. That's not really a real religion. And of course, that whole thing about what's a real religion is very interesting in terms of the Religious Restoration, Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the United States. So we have some legal standing on our side to be able to move things forward. And it does need to move forward on all fronts at once because it's easy to block any one of them, as I've certainly seen in my career, and I've also seen the breakthroughs happen. Great. Question? It seems like it might be pretty obvious, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the kind of concepts of why this hasn't broken through, like something that it has had such transformational experiences and positive experiences for so many people and so many scientists with like very re reputable degrees and whatnot could be so ignored. Like, could you just speak maybe to, to that, that concept? Well, I can make a comment on that. Uh, why had given uh, the efficacy and the power of these uh, substances? Why hasn't it broken through? You know, given that there are scientists and doctors who who work with these things and and, and get amazing results. Uh, let's take it from the cultural, sociocultural point of view. In the '60s, it was obvious that the counterculture revolution was real. Young people, essentially, especially around the Vietnam War, uh, were starting to resist uh, the anti-war movement. Uh, really picked up a head of steam in '66 through the end of the war. Uh, but the idea is that an open mind is a dangerous mind. When it comes to authoritarianism, you don't want people thinking for themselves. You don't want people talking free love. You don't want people. You know what I mean? It's just uh, and and while the government never made that case consciously and directly and publicly, you could feel the repression of the military-industrial complex, basically. You know, it's, it's like, this is a threat. I mean, there's a reason, for instance, if you go around the world and look at totalitarian regimes, that music like jazz or anything that allows people to improvise their lives is frowned upon. You want people to go by the rules, the, the rules that are made by usually oligarchs, and, you know. Wall Street, yeah, well, oligarchs. <laughs> anyway, uh, that that's just uh, one level of it. I'm sure you want to comment on other other dimensions of it. But the good news is, you know, ultimately, freedom is possible. You know, we can make choices uh, once you get underneath or out from underneath the fear, because a lot of this is driven by fear-based propaganda. Really, most of what you hear about drugs in terms of are, is bullshit. You know, it's just bullshit. You know, and anybody who has the awareness of, of the facts knows this, uh, or has had the experience. So that's my I, I put my faith in the fact that you know, one of the reasons you couldn't get kids to stop smoking marijuana is because you smoke pot, you have a good time, you feel better, it heals your. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, sure, right. Uh, but one of one of the things that's remarkable that you need to pay attention to is a lot of those scientists and doctors you're talking about got to be where they are by doing something. 
following the rules, doing as they were told. And I watched my profession and the medical profession just curl up. They just curled up. They didn't say anything. They were quiet about it. When I started to stand up and say, you know, really later in my life that in my 20s everything had changed for me around being able to work with LSD and other psychedelics, um, they, some of these people would be in the audience and they would kind of look. The fact that I was speaking was really, I was breaking a taboo that they'd been holding for a long time and what was really interesting is soon after they began to speak out. But the order of repression is enormous. It was enormous. And so you, you have to be ready for that kind of response. And at the same time, the need for what this can provide us as human beings for the transformation that's needed for our survival on the planet is so important that it cannot be batted down batted down militarily or batted down with propaganda and you know I mean Tim Leary said it a long time ago uh, think for yourself and question authority I when I go and talk in front of more you know professional organizations or even you know general organizations I always have at least a few doctors who come up to me afterwards and ask me aren't you afraid like, are, aren't you afraid that your college is going to do something to you? Or, it's like, you know, there's nothing illegal about talking about these things, right? Or talking about the best way to use them. Or, um, you know, they even have a term for it. It's called harm reduction, right? So um, I, that's what I say. It's how, you know, we have, but there are actual um, regulations in, um, I had to, I looked this up because I'm a child psychiatrist and I was doing harm reduction um, actual meetings with teenagers and it turns out that I wasn't allowed to have harm reduction talks with teenagers because there was zero tolerance is these are all these phrase terms right I wasn't supposed to be talking with them at all about it and so um, there are still incredible repressive you know things that are written into all kinds of organizational institutions about how you're not even supposed to talk about it. this is in Canada I'm not sure what's happening in schools now but in Canada you're as an official part of a school you're not allowed to have a harm reduction talk of the kid in speaking to what is allowed and what isn't allowed um, I'm sure that you have witnessed and you have seen and you have had colleagues who are doing underground work. Have you seen many people who have been punished by either having their license revoked or by being criminally, I mean, having to go through a criminal justice? And like, what have you seen in terms of the fallout for people who are still doing the work and who have been underground doing this for this last 50 years? The question is, um, what um, people who are doctors or professionals, have they actually been persecuted or prosecuted? legally for maybe they've been but prosecuted legally for actually doing this work if they've been doing it underground is that the question yeah i worked with a mexican psychiatrist um, who had secured an unbelievable permission from the mexican government he had been uh, the assistant secretary of health for mexico and helped to eradicate malaria the first time it was eradicated in mexico and uh, then became a psychiatrist 
and was involved with the Justice Department who gave him a permission to use any psychedelic drug in therapy. And he operated under that permission from 1967 to 1971. He was, actually no, 73. And he was arrested when there was a presidential election and the man in the Justice Department who had extended to him this permission was trying to run for president. Mexico has a single party system, so it was infighting in the party, and he became a political football. They decided, how could we embarrass this guy so he doesn't make it to the presidency? Easy, we'll arrest the psychiatrist and make him look like a buffoon. And so they did. He was jailed for nine months. When he was released from prison, he was told that if he continued his work, the next time the Federales showed up, their machine guns would go off. He continued to work. He was arrested a couple of times in the United States. He did profound work with people, putting himself at risk enormously in, in a way that most professional people are not inclined to want to do. Um, I know others that have lost their licenses. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation. You know, when you look at the history of drug prohibition, there were people in the beginning of the prohibition of heroin that doctors that were writing prescriptions for heroin 20,000 doctors were arrested in the United States by Harry Anslinger the chief author of the beginning of the drug war this is back in the 20s and 30s and when you when you see how frightened western medical doctors are to write prescriptions for opiates that, they don't even know it, but that's where the fear is coming from. 20,000 doctors thrown in jail. And most of them got out at great cost, but most of them got out. On the other hand, there, are, there were, what, um, 2,500 guides mm -hmm. who came to a meeting at one of the, one of the maps had a, 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 in 2010? It wasn't was 2,500. Oh no, they, right, there were like 250 guides, people who were guides, showed up, people who were underground guides, and some of them have been working for decades. So um, I think that if you're, if you're very public, like um, Gabor Mate is a physician who in, in Vancouver had worked with some addicts, um, and he was very public about the fact that he was doing it. And he, that's, he got a call saying, stop or we'll come and arrest you. So if you do it underground, so, but that's the problem is in order to have a free and open discussion and a free and open training that you can publicize so that therapists all over know about it and you can have it, you can't be using the psychedelics. So one of the things that we're hoping to do with our psychedelic training is that we train for the set and setting, which is 99% of it anyway, because we've got already got so much up here that you know, we can actually induce psychedelic experiences without actually ingesting anything. And if you train for that, and then you realize what that extra little bit would be. So that's how we're gonna be doing the training. I don't know if that's, yeah, that, that's helpful. It just is the question, um, is it holotropic that you go for the- Well, it's, a, it's using breath of all kinds has been used pranayama for without, you know, it's, so the holotropic breath work is a particular way of breathing more. We use other different kinds of breathing, all different kinds of breathing. Breath, and breath work, work, body work, work, poetry, ritual, everything. Multimedia. Everything. Yeah. <laughs>
I mean, the shamanic tradition is about using everything that is available in your culture to foster a transformative journey. And unfortunately, psychedelics are not so completely available, but you know, that would, the obvious thing would be to include that as well. Another question back well, I, I wanted to just say, well, there's the other ma major part of any training to help people is the integration afterwards because a lot of people have all kinds of experiences that they don't know what to do with after the ceremony is over so the whole the integration piece that you're talking about is a major important piece for us to train ourselves to train therapists to train each other peer training okay back here You're wondering about uh, research with analogs of a lot of the psychedelics and, and uh, why isn't that happening? Uh, I don't know if you're going to talk about the designer drug law that came out uh, after MDMA was banned, but <clears throat> Congress, in its ignorance, uh, decided that, well, the way to deal with this is any substance that produces effects or experiences like Schedule One substances are also banned. And it, I mean, it, it is, it's about as vague as you can possibly make it, but it, it was designed uh, because, you know, friends of ours were generating analog designer drugs with a, a little difference in the molecules. And are those illegal? No, they're not. Well, Congress just threw a blanket over everything and said, you know, I mean, you could even put aspirin under this, you know, you, you take enough aspirin, you're going to get high too. So, uh, but it's, it's, I, is that law still on the books? It, the law is still on the books, and it was one of the rare occasions when the drug industry really partnered with us to oppose it. They were opposed to it because they needed to investigate different drugs and different chemicals, and they didn't want stuff to be automatically illegal the moment they made it if it looked like or acted like a scheduled substance. That's crazy. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> ignorance on a very massive scale. And the cost of it is becoming apparent. With marijuana, the fact that cannabinoids may be involved in tumor regulation and tumor growth and could be implicated in a cure for cancer would be the ultimate demonstration of the idiocy of a prohibition, especially a prohibition of a medicine that was in the pharmacopoeia in the 1900s and had a plethora of medical uses established firmly. So. Question? Yes, I, I joined a little bit late too, so this may have been discussed. Um, I'm from Canada, so I don't know what's going on in, in the States around PTSD with regard to uh, war veterans. And if there's any opportunity there for, and that's such a huge group of people who are really suffering and coming back and creating a, a lot of distress in their home families and of course suicide. Um, if that's an, a door that could be open, particularly for maybe MDMA research or some. Yeah, grander scale that would that would then kind of counteract that whole military complex and 
The, the question is about uh, the military complex, the military industrial complex, and the wounded soldiers coming home from involvements abroad. It's as relevant to Canada as it is to the United States. And uh, the folks in South Carolina, Michael and Annie Midhofer, are working with veterans. They've gotten remarkable results after, I mean, remarkable to me, and I'm a psychedelic therapist, three MDMA sessions, 83% of the people no longer diagnosable as having PTSD. I think that's a little bit, yeah. like, scarily too good to be true, <laughs> but it's true that it's very, very effective, and that when you deal with anybody who's suffering, and you take an approach to them, that they're a human being, and you want to you want to hear their human story you're not concerned so much with their symptoms you want to hear what they went through as a person that is key to really relieving all of this michael is going to meet with some of the military folks in canada and is also trying to bring this forward there are projects going on within the um, veterans administration where they're trying to deal with the fact that mdma therapy is not invented here so we need to get therapists that are already in the VA system to be trained to be able to administer MDMA so then they can get excited about it and work on change from within. MAPS is funding that with private money. What MAPS is doing is phenomenal as a nonprofit. If MDMA is approved as a prescription medicine, it will be the first time in history that a nonprofit has done that. Yeah, this is all good news, by the way, because helping veterans with PTSD, uh, the military is overwhelmed with the problem. They, they don't have very much that's, that's helpful or that works. But I want to point out, though, you know, uh, two years ago at Bioneers, Ralph Metzner was uh, speaking as a part of a psychedelic medicine conference, and he pointed out that these studies are really critical and important, but the veterans are not waiting. Thousands of veterans are self-medicating yeah. or working with each other or, you know, they come to us and ask for advice and guidance, um, which to me is tragic. You know, the fact is you've got this shadow reality, you know, that, that's only in the shadow because the threat, uh, I mean, you realize that so many people of color and, and people uh, are in jail now in the United States in particular because of a joint or marijuana use or, you know, growing a plant or, you know what I mean? Thousands of people are just uh, being uh, abused and suffering as a result of the irrationality of drug policy. Uh, well, it's not just in North America, but that's our home. So this has got to change. And this conversation actually will help change it. One back here and then one to you. Yes, back here. You say you're a psychedelic psychologist. Are you living in America? Or are you living in the States? I lived in Baltimore, Maryland for many, many years. In 2006, when the FDA said, we're putting your project on hold, we kind of threw in the towel and moved to Cortez Island, British Columbia. And I am now a Canadian as well as an American citizen. Um, Oh, I wish they were yeah. looser. No, they're not. No, they're not. Because it's just uh, hard for me to, you know, as a, as a licensed 
Well, it's a very difficult thing. On you, She's talking about as a therapist herself, trying to wrap her mind around this on a professional level. You know, I mean, the unwritten agreement among professionals, we won't talk about this. What I was astounded when I finished my PhD work and I started teaching, I would even have adult students at Johns Hopkins saying to me, you know, why are you talking about this? You should be ashamed of yourself. You were working, giving psychedelics to people who were dying. I mean, that's an awful thing to do. You know, I mean, it. There, the power of that repression is enormous. And the to stand up in front of it is something that, you know, takes a lot and isn't, in my case, isn't, I didn't, I don't walk around the street with a placard saying I'm a psychedelic therapist, you know, but uh, I, it's not hidden. If you Google my name, I, I have trouble erasing it. Whenever I go to get licensed somewhere new, I find that my colleagues treat me as though I were doing something illegal. And then I say, well, I've done this on a legal basis over and over and over again. They don't understand it that level of ignorance professionally, what happens when repression takes a whole family of drugs out of medical training? It is a fact that psychedelics are not included in pharmacology classes in medical training still. This is absolutely ridiculous. I have a story about that. I, when I was in my child psychiatry training, we were in a case conference with you know 10 psychiatry residents and one of them had seen a teenager who had taken PCP and was formally giving a presentation and he said, um, and then he fried his brain. And so I stopped him and I said, what exactly do you mean on the biochemical level? What are you talking about? And he had no idea. That was, he was just parroting back the fried the brain thing, right? So whenever you hear another, you know, a professional saying a, a like a phrase like that you have to stop them and say exactly what are you talking about and you know the thing that happened in Canada was this one particular registered clinical counselor um, named Bruce Tobin had this idea that maybe it is an ethical and legal responsibility for a therapist if somebody showed up on something that it would be that they had to actually help them guide them and so he checked it out with the, the legal counsel for his professional organization, and it turns out that's true. So you might go to your professional organization and or talk to a, lo a local lawyer, do you, or if you know any local lawyers. Well, that's what my question, I guess, centers center, center. What's the protection, or does MAPS have? The, the, what is the protection? Yeah. Go Do you know about the Zendo project through MAPS? So Zendo is a project of MAPS that they bring to festivals. It's a harm reduction offering and you can go volunteer with the Zendo at the festivals that they bring it to. You can contact them online. Um, several of my friends contribute to that project and you, if you're a trained licensed psychotherapist or not, you can go and receive a training for them and then they have a, a dome, like a little zone set up at a festival for people who are having bad trips to go to. And so that's a place, if you're wanting to practice in that setting, it's a legal safe way. And then there's community that are, so, so that's one bridge place going on. Um, I also wanted to mention in the, the legalization um, 
conversation about how powerful these medicines address things that are really big problems for our society. You have um, MDMA, PTSD, uh, which is a big PR problem for the government. You have depression and ayahuasca mushrooms as well. Um, yeah, and then you have uh, iboga, which is a root from Africa that can grow in other tropical regions as well that addresses heroin addiction. It's something like 99% effective or something. And like that costs our government so much money. 95% of people who go through the system of getting in the courts and going through rehab end up back on, um, oh, sorry, that, that's actually, I'm talking about uh, meth. But um, the, there are, there are it's, it's amazing that these substances that are illegal are, it would be so much cheaper to deal with them if we use the, the like plants that we have at our capacity. It's like crazy. But the more like journalism and discussion we can do about that and pointing it out, um, in addition to the FDA routes, I think the more as a society, the more pressure and peer pressure there's just gonna be to be like, oh right, this is sensible. One of the things oh, I hear, just, okay. just one moment longer, is it, uh, concern for yourself, concern for safety, concern for professional uh, reputation and responsibility, and you know what happens when you've you've worked hard to get your credentials and to open a practice, and what happens if your colleagues start to say, "Oh, that's unethical. She's talking about psychedelics." Uh, and I certainly went through that in Maryland where I was practicing for most of my era in private practice. I was the chairman of the Board of Professional Affairs for the organization. I was the chairman of the insurance committee. Uh, I was in positions of prominence. I never hid the fact that I was a psychedelic researcher, but I didn't play it up either. And I think that's the problem is that there are a lot of people in that in that category you know if you don't have a way to exercise it if you don't have an ongoing research project then what are you going to do what are you going to say how open are you going to be so that ear that aura of control when i got my license as a psychologist in maryland i was personally threatened by the licensing board they called me in for an interview they said we know you've been working at Maryland Psychiatric Research Center we know you've been working at it with LSD you have to promise us that you're not going to use this in your practice you have to or we're not going to give you a license if anybody who's a therapist here who would like to know this this guy Bruce Tobin has a paper out and it, it spells out exactly in, in a philosophical and ethical way exactly why therapists are ethically um, responsible for their, their clients or patients. And if, they, if you were in an emergency room and one of your clients walked in, you would need to address what was going on with them. Well, it turns out if they come to your office, the same thing is true. But you can, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the paper. Don't you have Thank to you. talk about harm reduction with your minor yeah, you would you would think so, but but they make sure that you. I mean, if if I'm sitting in an office for the Ministry for Children and Families in Canada, I'm not, I'm not allowed to have that conversation. That's an ethical conflict. You, you, it is. It truly is. But they, but they've institutionalized it in the regulations. Okay, uh, here and then back here. There are a lot. I'm really. By the way, this is great. You've got a lot of questions and comments that are. Moving, moving the conversation forward. So. Okay, so um, there's a lot of, we've been discussing all this overwhelming 
evidence that these substances are useful and effective in healing in lots of realms. And it's also obvious all these roadblocks, right, that we keep hitting. And so it's like I see that the uh, powers that be have, you know, very, are very intent on keeping these things underneath. And so I'm curious if there's thoughts and things moving around maybe getting to, like, building relationships maybe with people that are in positions of power um, or, um, with a, or like, building relationships and then being able to use that to maybe provide them an experience that then might be able to change individuals' perspectives, or if it's not directly through use of these medicines, other healing techniques or therapies that are more culturally appropriate that then facilitate, like I said, people who have authority in the system be like healing themselves and then having greater capacity to like think about these things. I'll repeat, so, can I repeat your yeah, question? Yeah. <laughs> so there's so much evidence that it's really helpful. Yeah. So many roadblocks that we've been talking about. Are there conversations happening with people in power and helping them to either, either have experiences so that they will understand why this is so good? Yeah, either directly with medicines Either directly or, with the medicines or some other way. Yeah. So I know there's a lot being done in terms of media people in positions of power. Um, Jim Carrey, I think, has YouTube videos out about using DMT. Ayahuasca is all over Hollywood. Um, I, yeah. Um, there's also um, one thing that I think might be helpful is taking a group of artists down to Peru, and not necessarily visionary artists, but like people from like high-profile people from New York and other cities that are skilled at cultural rendering um, and and you know physical you know good painters or whatever and you know, bring to the jungle with the, with ayahuasca and be like ayahuasca what would you like to share through and will be vessels for you of that and you know sit together for a week or however long and do that because I, I you know we have a cultural there are some cultural bubbles still I think and we can break through those um, I've heard that conversation a lot about how do we reach people who are in positions of power through that I don't know of anyone working on it um, I'm certainly interested in that and connecting things up um, and, and being there's you know you have to be a little bit careful about it and transparent about safety levels and, and know who you can trust about saying what and in what container I think it would be good to I've been thinking about hosting an evolver network convergence where we talk about these kinds of things and invite government and kind of conservative media representatives present, present, in and um and and discuss it and you know clandestinely offer channels of opening or you know like not overtly say it but open that doorway to, to and, and specifically inviting people into the conversation um i think that's really good and could could help a lot thank you i i know that uh that Rick Doblin, who's directed maps for the, all these de decades, he's been trying to have these conversations forever. And I think he's gotten some contacts. Um, 
I don't know, I think there are a few people, but it really, it's, it really has to be everybody trying to make this happen. Yeah. I think uh, building individual relationships one-on-one -on -one with people, building trust is yeah. the key. Like yeah. starting well, I think the most dramatic example is uh, Sanjay Gupta, who's the yeah. medical expert on CNN. You know, he was anti-marijuana, anti-cannabis, all the, you know, mouthed all the usual prejudices and, and propaganda things. Uh, he met this family that had a, a little girl with severe epilepsy who was effectively treated with CBD, with cannabis, and it was, it, it touched him. He realized, oh my God. And then he finally actually looked at the science and he went through kind of a religious conversion. He realized, oh my God, I've been mouthing all this stuff, you know, to hundreds of millions of people and it's not true. And so he did this confessional kind of thing on CNN and completely turned around. And if you haven't watched these videos, he did two half hour specials on cannabis and healing. Uh, they're available online. Uh, it's called that, Weeds. What's Weeds. that? It's called Weeds. Weeds, it's called Weeds. Thank you. Uh, that to me, I was just, I said, oh, thank you, Lord. That's what we need. We need people to have uh, an opening you know, of the mind based on what we actually know, the knowledge that exists. And, uh, you know, people like that, uh, I mean, he changed the worldview of a lot of people as a result of his own conversion. Back here. Yeah. So, okay. The question was, um, how do you get somebody like a VA doctor who is used to controlling the situation and controlling the drugs, how do you get them to understand um, what the entheogens are really about and, and creating a different setting for that to happen in? Um, I, I, I think that right now, um, Michael Midhofer and Annie Midhofer are actually working with the VA hospital in South Carolina and they're working with the doctors in the VA hospital and training therapists there in a particular, they're doing actually a study in the VA hospital. I don't know what the exact setting is, but they're probably trying to make it as, as, as good as possible. But they are making that connection and, the, and it's actually, that's happening right now. So maybe that's one inroad and then uh, Dr. Midhofer will be coming to Canada and talking to some of the people in Canada, in the military. So we're hoping that's like the very first little beginning of this. And, and there are older inroads that have been made by people like Stanislav Grof. Stan was the first person to propose a cogent theoretical framework for what happens to somebody when they're undergoing the effects of a psychedelic. And it took a generation of therapists that read his works and that felt more comfortable with the material that people would be bringing up in sessions. One of the things that has happened in psychiatry, psychiatry is basically funded by the drug industry. Training is funded by the drug industry. The drug industry wants to see people as devices that are broken, 
that can be fixed with the proper reparation or the proper restoration of balance with a drug you're going to take for the rest of your life. So they're not interested in having psychotherapy be a part of psychiatric training anymore, and they've been very effective at removing it. What's needed to work with psychedelics is psychotherapy. It is that human, person-to-person contact. But that's what makes it wonderful to be a doctor. That's what really draws people to medicine. They want that. So it's, and it's been deprived. Medicine has been deprived of it. As you're treating a collection of symptoms, like a broken car, it must be, oh, it's this, this, and this. Therefore, it must be the master cylinder that's out. We'll replace the master cylinder, give them uh, Zopiclone and that's going to fix them. And then you just check in with the person and you say, are you doing better in your symptoms instead of who are you, what is your life about, what's going on with you, how can we help you to see more clearly what it is to be a human being on the planet. And I, I think there's a hunger amongst healers to have that return to healing. And the psychedelics amplify that, and that's part of what's wonderful about them. That's right. Back here. Yeah, um, she was asking about at large festivals providing containers for people to have uh, productive experiences as opposed to potentially not. Um, be, um, I'm not sure how many of you have been to large festivals, but uh, it's pretty rage-faced, lots of alcohol, lots of coke, um, along with the psychedelics. It's like... I can hardly handle being there sober. It's so intense to be around that. Um, so a few a few ways, I think having an ambient zone, a lot of these huge festivals have like nine stages with a pretty intense side trance or um, bass, like, like house music that's, a lot of it's pretty violent actually. Um, and but there's uh, there's not an acoustic stage. There's not like you. Some of them are, but it's like you can hardly hear it because it's so loud. The whole container. Um. So I think providing a zone, like acoustically designing the festival, one so that you have moments of silence entirely, so that people can hear the earth. And I think that can be you know designed carefully. You have to have everyone kind of agree on it and advertise it in a way that people know that it's going to happen and and respect it and participate. Um. I think also yeah, having an ambient zone where the music is you know mellow and conducive to like you know closing your eyes and trance and go within fully into your experience instead of the laser light show all that eye candy all the sex you know it's like all that stuff um i think also like when we do the evolver lounge at festivals like in australia they'll go to rainbow serpent and a couple other ones and they um they have a dome that's like a safe like yin space for people so they'll workshops during the day but at night it's a place where that people know about where they can go and have a deeper conversation and that happens at like the tea zones at festivals too those are a few ideas and then just reminding people that you know another way of working with a medicine is to gather in a small group of friends as a small community out in the woods um that that 
met, so many people at festivals don't know that that's a way that people gather, or they they don't know that San Pedro exists. Like they're working with Molly or 2CB, which are kind of similar to a San Pedro experience, but they have no idea that there's like a plant that does a similar thing. Um, so the education piece, uh, yeah. No, the Evolver Lounge. Yeah. That's her. Yeah, we're, we're about to change our name as a global collective. It'll be something, but it'll still be something lounge. But yeah, I'm putting together like a portal that can go to conferences and provide okay, that safe about. space. Yeah. Talk to her. Yeah. Okay, and I, I think there's a key piece here, and that is the sacred vessel. The vessel where the experience takes place needs to be a sacred vessel. Sacred means safe enough to be born in, safe enough to die in, feeling held in trust and caring so that you can go really deeply. Then the other part of it is after having a profound experience, the integration piece. That piece is a, a monologue, the person talking about their own experience, but it's also a dialogue with other people there in some kind of a circle format where people can help you to come back together, uh, to come to realize how are you going to bring this home? How are you going to use this to change your life? How are you going to ground it? And those are the pieces that are kind of haphazard. I mean, if you think about the festival scene, if you think about the acid test before it, um, the people were searching for these things, but we haven't rediscovered them yet. If you look back to ancient Greece, where at the Mysteries of Eleusis, it's fairly well established that something that contained amides of lysergic acid was the wine that people were consuming. And that was a beautiful vessel. It was a sacred ceremony. It was also secret. And it was something you could do once in your life. Very profound. Connected with the very foundations of Western culture, with the philosophies and the understandings of the world that we, our consciousness rests on. And we're sort of trying to recreate that in a, in a, in a not entirely conscious way. And I think just to be more conscious of it, to be, how do you create a safe space? How do you help people to trust each other enough to go really deep with each other? How do you support somebody when they're in deep process? And part of it is being able to be comfortable with it. So part of it is the shamanic side of your own personal experience, your own training, to have gone deeply, to have died, to. Have no, to know what the depths of this is so that you're not so terrified of it when you see it in another, so that you're able to be a vessel yourself for it. Uh, a couple of things. One, uh, I don't think anybody mentioned, but I think everyone would agree that uh, in regard to doing therapeutic work using psychoactive uh, substances, it is one whole lot easier to do in smaller groups than it is in larger groups. It's a whole different animal and can be a whole lot more effective. Uh, although that's not to say it's not possible in large groups. Yeah, your comment is that it's easier to do psycho, you know, psychoactive or psychedelic psychotherapy in smaller groups than at a festival. And you know, by the way, we're not talking about at, at, at music festivals doing therapy. You know, what we're talking about is the, is the facing the reality that. 
the younger generations engage in these festivals and it's a very profound experience and it has a chaotic element and sometimes people need help or sometimes people need the kind of safe space that, that Richard's talking about. Um, we're, we're really looking at a whole spectrum of experience and, and, the, and the therapeutic one that is our realm of, of expertise and, and, and experience. I mean, I've, I've volunteered at festivals since I was in medical school and it's always been the bad trip situation where, you know, you're there to really catch people as they're uh, falling into some, some uh, negativity. But the creation of consciously creating sacred spaces where people can have epiphanies that change their lives and and, and heal themselves. Uh, uh, we, we have to figure out how to do it through the lounges, through the medical tents, through the therapist's office. Uh, there's no question, individual, one-on-one, -on -one, small groups uh, are all effective. And uh, that that's not going to eliminate the fact that people at huge festivals are, uh, are doing things that are not necessarily good for their health or their mind mindset. So. Now one other thing I wanted to mention, I, I, I don't know, once again, if this has already come up, but uh, in terms of education, there is a compendium, an encyclopedia in regard to cannabis that I, I think it should be required reading for graduating high school. It's called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Oh yeah, it's a great book. <laughs> if you yeah. want to learn about cannabis, all the aspects, if you want to learn, it's phenomenal. learn about cannabis, read The Emperor Has No Clothes. Yes. Wears no clothes, then it has no clothes. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, before we go on, it's one o'clock now, and I'm realizing this is a long stretch. Uh, I'm going to suggest that we go another 15 minutes rather than another half hour so the people before the water festival going over to Otter uh, Cove have a little time to grab a drink, go to the bathroom, grab grab a, a bit of lunch. Does that does that feel okay to people, another 15 minutes? Okay. And Rick, talk, let them know about Magenta's going to also be continuing a conversation. Oh, would you let them know what, what you said? Oh, sure. Um, after this, if you want to come back after the water festival or stick around, um, I'm going to be talking about the evolution of festival culture or the future of festival culture and uh, what I see as positive pathways of development that are happening uh, as that culture has become so large. It's now differentiating into um, you know, uh, more intentional modes of gathering and integrating back with the default world and creating sustainable loving, safe uh, community uh, beyond the, the festival bubble. Um, so we gonna do that an here? overview of that, yeah. Okay, so, uh, oh, uh, sorry about that. After the water festival, uh, do you know how long that's going to be? It's gonna be about an hour, so people may have to decide how long they wanna be in what place, but Magenta's here. At what time, right, right after or at 2.30? One thirty. Okay, Magenta will be here if you want to continue that conversation. Uh, um, over here. It seems like there'd be a, it's a rich topic that um, could be developed about showing how big pharma would be wanting to stop what you're doing, and how there's a lobby of uh, big pharma that doesn't want to have people liberated, that wants to keep them in a cycle of uh, use of uh, creating situations which traumatize people and then giving them big pharma to. We, we have no shortage of opposition talking about Big Pharma opposing this. You know, Big Pharma opposes it. Uh, the CIA was using LSD yeah. for interrogation, and they assure us that it didn't work. 
of course we should believe them because they experimented on the American people in violation of their charter you know I mean so probably there are a plethora of negative uses for psychedelics that are shielded by them being illegal um, but we're talking about positive and yes. transformative effects yeah, right. and the fact that there's uh, concentric circles there's the the dyad of, of individual psychotherapy and then the the, the the polygon of group psychotherapies of different sizes, but then you have the festival uh, environment, which is hundreds or hundreds of thousands of people. And in each of these, transformative experiences are possible and take place. And what are guidelines and safety nets that can be established? And it's all it's all experimental, it's all evolving still. You know, I remember when my Mexican colleague showed up at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, we were working one-on-one -on -one with people and he came in and we were using one drug at a time and he came in and he said, oh, I use these plants and these drugs and I give different drugs to different people at different times in groups where everybody's on something different and I use sensory overload and and I take people in the mountains to work with shamans and I and you know and then he was a public health doc he was really interested in how could he help the largest number of people at a given time he'd have at least 300 people in therapy with him at any given time so his reach as a therapist was enormous but these are issues that go beyond him and his personality and he's dead now and and it, it's it's part of what we face collectively is the transformative power of this yeah. how to maximize the quality of transformation that people have that it be very positive that it be very uh, creative that it be very helpful and that it get grounded so that it can help us transform the society yes I'll take uh, this question yeah i i have a uh, practical question this is not a this festival, I'm not a gathering of 10,000 plus, that's a very different vibe, but I'm curious if, uh, if you guys could speak a little bit to, um, I don't know, I'd be willing to bet that within the next 24 hours, some of the people collected here and beyond this circle might have some psychedelic experience. And, um, really? Yeah. Are you sure? It's <laughs> about like, self-care and care of your friends, uh, if, say, a bad trip uh, presents itself. Got to take it away. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't I haven't seen any Volver Lounge here, so could you just give us yeah. you know, five, top five tips? Where, where, is it, where are the, the best places to go to have a transformative setting for your, in your next 24 hours? What did you say? The tea lounge. The tea lounge. Yeah. Where it's, else? It's an ambient space. Where, where else are the other places? On the beach. On the beach. The red tent. The red tent, the women's space down on the beach. There's a Neptune nap Neptune nap place that's also just up a yurt that's just up the way. There's a sound healing yurt also that's just up just before that. Story dome. Story dome. Mm. Does everybody know where those places are? <laughs> Actually, we are going to be showing a, uh, a psychedelic version of the uh, universe story tonight, so you might what want time? to. What time? Uh, well, it'll begin about uh, 8.30, I think, and, and it'll 
the black dome? In the, in the dome, yeah. The black dome. The black dome, yeah. The, this is called the story dome, yeah. And, and uh, don't forget the hot tubs, too. Okay. Um, question? Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, what is, do you have a sense of um, when these um, substances become legal, um, what type of educational training one would need to become a um, psychedelic psychotherapist? Like, do you need to have a PhD, do you think? Or the question is, in order to help somebody go through an experience like this, to become a psychedelic therapist, what kind of training would you need? Yeah, what kind of background do you need? I mean, that's the question that we've actually been asking ourselves also. Um, I think having a certain understanding of developmental um, trauma and conflict and understanding some, so having some psychological background would be very helpful. Um, also training in how to help yourself deal with these things yourself. So having your own experiences that are, are good transformative experiences for you. I, there's no specific graduate program that I know of except for the California Institute for Integral Studies that's actually has a track that's for psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, but it's just starting. It's just starting right now. And um, but you can always I mean if you got like a, a counseling degree of some kind and then got some supervision for doing that work and then had your own experiences that were also good transformative experiences, it would give you a good at least a good grounding a good basis for starting with this. And, and there's the issue of um, what is enough training to be able to actually do this, and then again, what's the official line, you know? And I, I, I would just suggest as a person sort of struggling with the powers that be about official levels, it's probably PhD and MD level folks that are going to be involved in that, and I think that's just a necessity you know it's very much like psychotherapy in Canada psychotherapy is mostly delivered by counselors now it's not delivered by psychologists and psychiatrists because it's gone out of the training because they're too busy with other things so you know it it won't always be at this pinnacle of educational exclusivity but it's just you know, is, this is used by the society to keep people out, you know, to say, well, this is what's necessary. And, and, and having a PhD or an MD might be necessary. It's certainly not sufficient to be a good therapist at all. I mean, it's really about your basic humanity and, and your basic understanding of, of, of how does a person get to be a person? What are the stages they go through just so that if somebody goes back to that stage, you're not freaked out by it. You understand what's going on and can support it. You mentioned that there were 250 underground guides who came. I'm just curious, what was the spectrum of their education and their background? Um, was it a very sort of like, oh, we're all PhDs? Or was it no. a broad range of like, you know, you know, I did a lot of acid in the 60s and like I've been guiding since then like what, what did it look like we, we can't give you a definitive repeat answer I want to repeat the question yeah <laughs> uh, she's asking about the guides meeting that happened at the first maps conference where 250 people came were they all MDs and PhDs no they weren't uh, I can't give you a reading on educational level but my impression was vastly different from no particular academic training to folks with MDs and PhDs. 
Um, but that that range is the range I would expect eventually to be recognized. In the beginning with the officialness, it's gonna be at the highest level first. And then, you know, what'll happen is people will open clinics and then they'll have people in the clinics who have less formal degrees and it will loosen up over time. And that's just that one avenue. That's that, you know, the, the, the rigid side of getting it through the, med the existing medical system. It's also, I mean, the biggest fear of psychedelics on the part of the medical establishment, it's gonna change medicine. Yeah. It's gonna change the way medicine is taught. It's gonna change who doctors are. And that's frightening to any organization that, you know, is a, a priesthood that's passing on their version of the truth. You know, I mean, one of the things that surprised me as an investigator is physicians are not researchers. Physicians don't get to be physicians by wondering about how combinations of things work. They get to be physicians by doing what you're told and administering it the way you're told to administer it. We're going to get down to the last comments, and uh, and then we'll we'll close for uh, this session. Yeah, being um, somebody who's out about all of this stuff, uh, both my husband and I are often called upon to help people who have had a psychedelic experience in some either festival or down in Peru or somewhere and they've had a trauma that that's come up for them from the past and they're they're scared out of their wits or they're having a very hard time functioning in their lives and so we've had to mop up in a way after certain people I mean so people having training in how to help people with those kinds of experiences is really what we really need to be doing because there are so many people out there who are traumatized and psychedelics do bring up people's trauma. So that's the main difficulty around the training. How do you help people learn how to help people through those kinds of experiences? I think that I think we're going to finish. Yeah. If you have any more questions, we'll be here. We'll we'll stay Let here. Let me just say the one thing was that you know the old dictum was we just put it in the in the water supply and everything will be. <laughs> I think I think my message to you is the sacred vessel message and the integration piece, and that that is really key to making the psychedelic experience be what it can be at its deepest level and that's going to change everything so it's much more human relationship it's much more love and support and it's much less in the substance we're so used to drugs that are identified as fixers and these are not fixers these are amplifiers mm -hmm. and you got to have the right music to amplify it one resource I will mention is James Fadiman's newest book. It's, it's called The Psychedelic Handbook. Or, or the gu Guide, guide yeah. for the Psychedelic Explorer, I think. Yeah. The, the James Fadiman is, is one of the uh, great psychedelic researchers, a psychologist uh, started in the 50s. Uh, but he, he's written a book that's a manual for how to 
Say the title again. A Guide for the Psychedelic Explorer. A Guide for the Psychedelic Explorer. And uh, no matter what your level of expertise or training or experience, you will learn some very useful things uh, by taking a look at the James Fadiman. And, and Jim was one of the wonderful researchers involved in the use of LSD and mescaline and psilocybin to stimulate creativity. Yeah. And he was doing great, great work with that, where folks were producing creative solutions that were held by their peers in a blind evaluation. The peers didn't know that they'd taken psychedelics and they looked at their stuff, they, their solutions before psychedelics and after, and they all said the ones after are the really good ones. <laughs> well, I want to thank Donna and Richard and Magenta for a wonderful panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your attention and your great questions uh, to be continued. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Rick. You, Rick. You're welcome. Thanks, Rick.